Shut up, I do too. Hello everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast based on writers sitting around, drinking quarantinis or coffee, and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your hosts today are David Welsh and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 50, Technical Writing for Fun and Profit. Today in the coffee shop, we have Paul Gustafson. Paul is a technical writer and a runner of a whole business, a stable full of other technical writers, of which Dave Welsh is occasionally one. Welcome, Paul. Well, thank you for having me. We're delighted to have you be here. Um, I have read a few of the blogs that you have online, and there is a thing that uh, Dave was convinced that you and I would be singing each other's song. People ask me how to, what they should study to succeed in security or life or anything else. And I say, improve your writing, improve your communication ability, because any idea that you have in the world, if you can't coherently state it such a way that everybody understands, you are not going to get anywhere. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of that line of thinking. In fact, I think, I think it actually goes farther than that. I think if in order to coherently explain something, you need to understand it, which means, you know, a good writer is a good thinker. And uh, if you're a good thinker, that's, you know, that's a, that's a useful skill in life. <laughs> Not everybody is. <laughs> um, well, the other thing that I would say is, uh, you know, all good communication, all effective communication starts with empathy I, and understanding in, who your audience is and what they need from the experience. And that's also uh, a skill set that seems to be in short supply in today's world. So I think good thinking and more empathy, those are things we can use more. Well, in terms of empathy, I, I entirely, I want to expand that a little bit because I so, so deeply and core agree with you there. We talk, oh, yeah. there's, there's a lot of uh, writers that started out as gamers and D&Ders and readers of fantasy and science fiction and whatever, whatever kind of books, great consumers of media in one place and another, because it allows them to put themselves in another world, to read things from another point of view, to think about things from another point of view. So you have the point of view of a character, and then you have the message of the story, which sometimes is at odds with the point of view of the character. For instance, we can. Our, my favorite idea of that is Charles Dickens, who was writing about the poor, the unfortunate, and he used a character of Scrooge to do it. So he made you, took you there, and then how do you teach somebody like Scrooge empathy? And when you learn empathy, you are able to coherently communicate an idea much better. And in return, he became one of the great socially conscious people of his generation of his time in England, in London in particular, because he was able to empathize, even though he was from a wealthy, made money writing was from a reasonable family. Yeah, boy, I like that story. And I, I think that's, uh, I, I think we need more of that in today's world. I mean, it's clear that, you know, all of many of the problems we have are because we have a hard time understanding someone else's point of view. And if we really remind ourselves to to carry that empathy into those conversations or try to, uh, I think it gives us a better chance of actually communicating with people that may not share the same point of view as us. So what do you so, think? Um, I mean, this obviously relates to um, today's hyper-polarized political situation. What would uh, either of you, I mean, obviously, if you could be easily solved, you'd have solved it 
by now. But um, how do you think it applies to that? Well, you know, I think I think it's a good question. I think you know, in today's information landscape, uh, we we get uh, we don't get uh, information from all points of the of the spectrum anymore. We all live in our own little custom crafted, optimized for engagement filter bubble, and we share that bubble with other people who are of like minds. And we don't get the stuff that makes us uncomfortable. We only we only really get the stuff that makes us comfortable. Hey. And we get more and more of that. And, and it, it gets to the point where, you know, we being the editor for ourselves is dangerous, right? We need someone who, who can look at the whole landscape of information and, and help us sort it out. Cause there's just, there's just so much of it. I, I listened, uh, I was listening to an event over the weekend and, and, someone made the comment that information overload leads to information immunity and it makes it very difficult. You know, we're, we're all drowning in so much information. We're all information addicts and we're all so overwhelmed by so much of it that when we hear something that doesn't quite fit our worldview, we tend to ignore it. I'm going I'm to take an opposing point of that for just one moment on it, because I like the idea and I wanted that to be heard completely, but here was the thought. Is it just information overlord, overload, or is it, I'm thinking shouty font, because I realized listening to the difference between this was mid-90s, there was an NPR and they were talking about an old vermiculate mine that had been run by Dow Chemicals and bought 50 years earlier by somebody else, and then they discovered that it had asbestos in it. Now, a lot of people got sick who'd worked in there. They had a higher percentage. And at the beginning, you were like, those those mean, terrible people, they have done this. To but then they turned it around and say, well, Dow paid a couple million for the cleanup, even though they hadn't owned it and knew nothing about it. And at the end of it, you were stuck with hearing all sides of the story. And I remember, I think I was riding with you in a car, Dave, and I looked at you and like, this is so weird. They didn't tell me how I'm supposed to feel about this. And that is where I think the difference of information overload, I'm going to call it emotional demanding overload. Like we demand your outrage and every headline is trying to generate and demand outrage because I think they think that's the only way to get attention. Well, I think, I think that's part of the bubble though. I don't think that's just the headlines. I think um, to Paul's point, it's that's what the bubble is. People agreeing with you all the time, and um, that's how you know what to feel. Or I don't know. It, it's well, I think I, I think I know, we're all is, a lot simpler than we'd like to believe we are. And yeah. I think the things that that make us mad or scare us are easier to identify than we would like to believe. And I think much of what we react to. Uh, especially in the social media bubbles, uh, is designed to scare us or make us mad or both. And, right, but it's. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, and I, and I and I think that's that's part of the bubble. Is it's not just an overload, but it's 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 pushing our buttons and it's trying to manipulate us. And to to, to their credit, it's to, they're doing a good job. You know, they, there are bad actors driving us apart from each other. Well, which, uh, I don't think it's cop. just bad actors though either. I mean. Um, I think it's I think it's become a mode of communication, and and we as consumers are, uh, to the extent that we're also producers, are learning these bad habits from the media we consume. I mean, um, we it takes effort to 
to think about stuff and to consider other points of view. And um, we often don't. I mean, um, I, I get frustrated reading my Facebook feed because so many of my friends, while their, their opinions are, you know, congruent with mine, but they're using abusive language or they're, um, they're, they're being just as tribal as the quote unquote other side um, in the way that they're expressing themselves. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, I think we all need to be a little less sure of our own opinions. And I think we all need to be a little more open-minded um, than, than we are. And I think, I don't think it takes a lot to flip that situation around. I think we can all, uh, you know, resolve to be a little better and it'll make a big difference. Right? So, there, there was something um, that you wrote in one of your blogs, and I'm going to post it on our site so they can read it. It was, and it, it's a parallel, so bear with me on this story. You were talking about how sometimes for technical writing, engineers and programmers and really, really smart people forget that other people do not know all that they know and have not experienced all that they've experienced. And it is sometimes hard for even very, very intelligent, well-read, traveled people to communicate. And this is, this is where I think that writing is so important, to be able to communicate how do you who, let's say that you had children young and so you were forced to take three jobs and you've worked 16 hours a day, so you've worked hard your own life and somebody has to be able to read to you, to teach you, to explain to you, to give you use cases, to see other points of view when you've been working hard and looking down and studying your shoes for the past 30 years. It is a combination of empathy and the reminder constantly of use cases of, I need to give you stories that you can understand to and relate to so that I can get you up to the level where we can talk about things on the same keel. And I think writing is is key, important to that. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with you. I think, you know, that, com that problem that you described in terms of there being, you know, a big difference in understanding is so common in our industry. We gave it a name. We call it the context gap. And it it's the, you know, it's the level of understanding. It's your, I mean, if you're a software innovator, if you're helping create a new piece of software that no one has ever done before, you're, the process of software engineering forces you to understand that information landscape in excruciating detail because you have to write a program that represents the, the ideas uh, in whatever application you're building. So and you have to challenge your own assumptions, though. And that's well, what it does, <laughs> it, it elevates your it elevates your understanding. It's it's very similar to when you go on a hike. When you're at the bottom of a mountain and you're looking at the top where you're gonna go, you look at that place and you think, man, that's I'm never gonna get there. But what you do is you see where the path starts and you see a tree that's not too far, and you think, well, I can get I, at least I can get to that tree. And then you know you make it, you wind you wind your way up to the tree and you think, well, I'm still a long ways away, but I can get to that rock at the next curve and then you make it there and then the next little molehill and then the next uh you know the next uh flower bush or whatever it is and lo and behold you're at you make it to the top and you look back and that perspective is like well that wasn't so bad right uh and the same thing happens in abstract landscapes as you're blazing that trail as a software developer climbing that mountain of innovation 
you're elevating your understanding of that landscape. And, you know, it's a, it's a mess, right? You know, trailblazing is not a, it's not a, uh, a clean process. You, you try, you, you wind up going down rat holes and you get to a place where there's a, a sheer face. You have to go back and try something else a different way. But eventually through perseverance and work and, and talent and intelligence, you get there. And then, you, but from that now spot, when you turn around and look at that landscape, it looks a lot simpler, but it's only because you, you traveled that path. The next person that you're trying to get to use whatever it is that you're, you've created is never going to travel the path that you just traveled to get there, nor would you want them to. So what, what technical communications is about is, is giving that new person an elevator that may not get them all the way to the top where you are, but it gets them far enough that, that landscape, up that hillside, to what we call the threshold of usability, right? where they can actually... They can actually get value from the thing you just created. And the only way to get them there is to help help them understand enough of that landscape from their point of view, understanding what they're, why are they going up that mountain in the first place? It's not, be, it by definition is different than the reasons you did, right? Um, so their, you have to, their problems you have are to different. give that to them exactly. in a way that, that serves their information. Needs. And, and that's where empathy comes in. Right? Um, we, we often find... And a similar problem that's related to this is this notion of push versus pull. Technology providers have a lot to say. They've done a lot, a lot of cool stuff. They've built a lot of neat things, and they want to tell you all about it from their perspective. And while that's, that's cathartic for them, it doesn't necessarily help the person that's trying to use the technology. You have to take that information and map it onto what the person that's, who the user is, and what they're trying to do which again is inherently different. I got to, I, I got to tell you a story that, that makes you so, that makes you so completely correct. So I was off. Gonna have it, to break I, like those I was well, going to say, I was, I was um, in North. You tell your story, but, but I'm going to, uh, Paul, and hold that thought. Paul, one of, one of my functions here on this podcast is to be a contrarian and throw, um, throw uh, monkey wrenches into the works, uh, especially when things are going too smoothly. And you guys are getting along far too well, so I'm going to do that. Just for a warning. So. <laughs> All right. But go ahead with your story. Jeannie. Okay. So this was me in Pier, North Dakota, sitting down, and I was with a bunch of guys that said, we want to talk about a security service that we want to offer this uh, state, plus the federal people there, plus the local university. And they had given us the bios of the people that were going to attend the meeting. And apparently I was the only one who did the reading again. And they had so many assumptions about anybody that was going to use all of this security software, you know, we're going to get it and they're going to use it. And I said, wait a second. And I, I, I looked at a woman there cause I was knew it was her. She was the only other chick in the room. And I said, tell everybody your background of how you got a seat at this table and she was a nice matronly woman who spoke up and she'd been an admin and she'd been a secretary. She started out as a receptionist and somewhere a few years ago, the entire state decided to move from McAfee to Norton and she got put in charge of it because she was a little bit free. So she read the effing manual and she learned how to troubleshoot and she spent the hours on the phone with tech support. And she wrote up how everybody needed to do every single little thing down to the bit. And she did it so well that they had no problems. 
So she earned her seat at the security table by understanding the endpoint, reading these technical manuals. But that didn't mean that she knew everything about security or everything about networks or everything about anything else. And so the people that I was with came in talking at a very high level and packet capture and packet loss. And so I said, do you understand what they mean when they say packet? And she's like, I'm hoping it means like the mailman brings it. <laughs> like, that's what I thought. Okay, guys, your assumptions are clearly incorrect. Let's back this down a little bit and say, what problem am I going to help her solve? What is her problem? And how do we fix it? Yeah, no, I think uh, you have to spoon feed the information to your user. Um, but that higher level information is important, too. I mean, if you're in, you know, in today's, uh, you know, in the modern API economy, uh, chances are you have <laughs> other software companies who are extending and customizing whatever solution you create <laughs> through, uh, you know, an interface of some kind. Right? Paul, I will wager you that nine out of 10 people of listening to this do not know what you mean when you say API. Ah, so it's just a way for a programmer to use somebody else's code. So instead of writing the code themselves, they can call, make a, a special call and get somebody else's code uh, to do that, you know, to do that, provide that bit of functionality so that they don't have to write, right? So uh, it's, it's engineer-to-engineer communication. I, I would assume that many of your people, uh, many of your listeners have heard the phrase uh, B2B or B2C. Uh, much of what we do at expert support is not either of those things. It's what we call E to E communications, engineer to engineer. And so that high level conversation that you heard your architects and developers, uh, when they're talking about how the thing was designed and how it fit together, and, you know, what the mechanisms were that worked. That's important too. It's just not as important for the user to understand all that stuff, but it is important to your partners and to, to your development team, you know, certainly and certainly to the new people joining your development team. So, uh, you know, I think, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the functions that we play is we try to get the right stuff uh, through the right channel to the right audience. And not everything is appropriate or necessary for everybody. Uh, you, can, you can really uh, optimize things by, you know, helping different audience segments accomplish what they're trying to do and not let all the other stuff that's intended for all your other audiences uh, get in the way of that. <laughs> uh, and less is often more. When, when we're talking about creative writing, there's whole groups of how do you write for middle grade? How do you write for young adult? How do you write for adult? What, how deep and complicated a language do you use for each of the levels? And the concept is almost exactly the same in technical writing as it is for creative writing in that way. How do you get the right information to the right person by knowing who you want your audience to be, who is your target, how much are you trying to communicate, how complicated is it going to be? And again, that empathy of understanding your reader of what do they want? What do they need? What what needs are you going to fill by this? And tell, tell me where your background is. Where did you start? What did you study to end up being a writer? Well, it's a you know, unsurprisingly, you know, technical writing is kind of an orphanage. We, 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 we get people from all different kinds of background, and I'm, I'm really no different. I, I, uh, you know, I was in the engineering college at Iowa State. I got a, a engineering degree in engineering operations, but I also got a degree in journalism. Uh, and I found that uh, 
you know, most of the electives that I was taking were in the journalism department. I like journalism. I like to write. And uh, when I uh, went to work for uh, an AI startup in Palo Alto uh, back in the 80s, uh, if you can believe that, uh, it turns out that knowledge engineering was a thing. It was the, it was the AI bubble of, of its era. And the company I worked for uh, really pioneered many of the techniques at Stanford and, and other places about how to extract information, how to interview uh, subject matter experts about their field of expertise and then use that information to model software. Um, and uh, I, I certainly uh, did some of that at that company, but then throughout my career, I always was a person that was in, you know, working in developer relations and, and trying to under, explain what the engineers were doing or in marketing, uh, trying to trying to help explain what the engineers were doing and hanging out with engineers while I was working in marketing or or working in engineering and, and hanging out with the biz dev and sales teams trying to explain what we were trying to accomplish. So I've always been a person that that kind of, uh, you know, formed a bridge between, you know, the technologists and, uh, the, you know, the, the marketer and sales folks. And then, you know, prior to landing at expert support, you know, that ultimately led to a, a content marketing agency where uh, I, I ran a content marketing agency for the better part of a decade and um, helped a team of writers and artists, you know, use content to build relationships through content marketing. Um, and that, uh, that ultimately led me to, to expert support where, you know, I'm now focused on content that's, that's kind of much more technical in nature in most, most instances and helping to helping engineers explain the work that they've done in a way that other engineers can appreciate want to use. Exactly. When, when, when you say content, again, I'm going to explain for a lot of the readers, he means anything that you write from if you've read read a technical article or something in Wired magazine. In in Paul's view, that's all content: articles, journalism, um, the white papers describing how things are done, the white papers that are quoted yeah. in other white papers that are quoted in articles. All of that is the long stream and, of content. Yeah, and and as as our animations and video, uh, yep. that all starts with a script. Right, where you you need to have a plan for how you're going to explain something with a video or um, you know an animation that you're going to create. And really, whatever form the content takes, this podcast you know, in essence is is a form of content. It absolutely We're is. Creating it on the fly, there'll be a transcript that will, uh, I'm sure, get generated from this uh, thing at some point, and then uh, that will be content. Right. So it, there's a lot of ways to generate it. It's hard to hard to get it right. Well, it is, especially when we hear a cantankerous bunch of argumentative people such as we are, Dave. <laughs> Speaking of, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I think I think there's two sides. Since you brought up content, I think there's two sides to it. I mean, um, it has taken on a meaning of um, basically what you just described of, you know, any kind of um, meaningful writing or, you know, um, it doesn't have to be transcribed. I mean, this is audio content that we're generating right now. Um, the dark side of content to me is that um, it's it's considered a it, in some cases it's considered a commodity, and and the the content itself is not the important part. It's you know oh we need some content for this um, for this blog or oh we need some content. It's um, who was it uh, said the medium is the message? That I think is a 
is a very dangerous and um, they're a marketing major and they should be slapped. Yeah, no, I mean, well, no, it's a famous quote by um, I want to say Luhan or somebody like that, but um, medium is the message. David Olin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but I mean, when when you're, I mean, the the internet is the the prime example when you're when you're like focused on the medium over the message, then you know, there's, there's something wrong there. Right. I mean, um, the, the, the words or the content, so, so to speak is, is what's actually doing the work. It's, it's what's actually important. Um, oh, there's, there's, I agree with you. There's no, there's no shortage of drivel, which is, you know, it, it, it and I think it exploded uh, in response to the search engine, right? Where you're just trying to improve your search rankings. And so you would generate content using a sea of keywords and meta tags to try to get, you know, your link on the search result, uh, you know, a few spaces right. up on the, uh, you know, not on, not on page two, but maybe on page one and hopefully above the fold if you got there. But, right. you know, frankly, that was as, as the algorithm over time has improved, you know, that kind of drivel has become less and less effective. There are still well, way yes, too many people creating, right? And in, in some ways, yes. But I mean, the question is, what what is what is the, getting that great search engine rating in service of? And, and the answer today is advertising. You just want eyes on the page because if somebody clicks on that page, then it generates a little bit of money for somebody. And it really doesn't matter what that page says. And I think that's, I mean... That's part of the problem, um, is that the the incentive is to get eyes on page. The incentive is not to um, put out quality content that is the um, that is the end itself. Yeah, I mean, in certain in some cases it is. I mean, there are sections of uh, a business with um, content creation, obviously. But I mean, look at something like Medium, where um, there are a lot of aspiring writers on there and there's are people who are actually making a living on there doing writing um, as kind of just like one person content mills. I see a lot of the same names over and over and over. And it's, it's all articles that um, take very little time to write because they're not researched. They're just opinions and they have clickbait headlines and the more people they can get to read their stuff, the more microtransactions they get. But there's yeah. a certain, yeah. Yeah. piece of that because there's there's more than just thoughts there's feelings there's some people that can create a narrative in writing that you find interesting or comforting or resonance like Chaz I'm not, I'm not I'm, yeah. yeah I'm not arguing that there aren't good writers and there isn't good writing and that that doesn't find its way onto the internet I'm just saying that the incentives are perverse um, for the big money parts of the internet that's Calvin, the uh, fourth partner in every episode. Oh, yeah. The cat. <laughs> oh, you can hear that, can you? Yes. Oh, yes, we can. Yeah, he, he clearly disagrees with me. <laughs> so, so, Paul, how do you... you when you no idea. When not, not just the rants, because it's, it's easy to get on a rant with an idea in a soapbox and climb up and crank out three to five hundred words, I know, but... When you have something that's like there's there's been boiling around with you, how do you approach it? What is your give us your method? Are you a pantser or a plotter? How we we've been calling it for 
This is her, her stock question. It is a stock I, question. I think that's a great question. No, I, I, um, I, I guess I have a, a fairly undisciplined approach. <laughs> uh, I will uh, come up with an idea and I will share it with some colleagues to think, hey, I think there's a story to tell about whatever this is. Or I'll be in a meeting and we'll hear a concept and well, you know, somebody will tell a story and say, man, that's a, that's a good point. And that goes on to the list. Right? And so I, I have a list of ideas and um, there's something comes along, you know, either, uh, uh, you know, we're in a customer situation or employee situation where somebody needs to hear the point that we made. And instead of writing an email to them, I will write the blog post and then point it to them. And uh, once we draft it, we, I, you know, I have, you know, several colleagues review it and get feedback. And so we don't, I don't just post stuff. I, you know, we, we have a fairly informal, but um, required review step to make sure that we're, uh, you know, publishing things that we, we think reflect how we think about it. So our, you know, at expert support, we have a, you know, we have a small audience and the purpose of the blog is to, allow the people that might be considering coming to us for help get to know how we think about things without having to, you know, sit on a call like this for a half hour or, you know, in the old days, God forbid, go to a meeting with some people. Uh, No meetings, no meetings. (laughs) Yeah. If we're, if we're successful getting you to the website uh, and you, you know, take the time to read a couple of blog articles and perhaps uh, one of the articles in our library, which tends to be a little more um, in-depth and kind of more thought leadership, uh, you know, kinds of content as opposed to the blog, which is more snackable to, to steal a phrase that I don't really like, but it's, it's, it's shorter pieces that are designed to make a single point as opposed to explain a particular topic, which is what the, the library is about. But, but you, uh, you, you brought up some... If you, if, you, yeah, if you could read that stuff, if you could look at that stuff, you, you'll get a sense for how we think about things and hopefully you'll get a sense that we know what we're talking about. And if you need help with those things, uh, chances are you, you will, you know, shoot us a note or fill out our form or pick up the phone and call us. Um, and that's how we get most of the new business to our, uh, to our little businesses through referral and through, you know, web leads that come to us after they've, they've gotten to know how we think on the website. So it's an important part of how we, and we cultivate those. I was going to say, Paul, we frequently said that, the more that you write, the more that it helps you be able to write, that it becomes a habit that when you're writing regularly, it's easier to write regularly than if you haven't written settling down. Do you find that to be true? I, I do. And I also think it's, I mean, it's uh, in the role that I play, you know, I'm the leader at expert support. I, I'm, I'm interrupt driven. So, you know, finding time to write and finding time to uh, to get away from the, the interrupts on Slack or an email. And, uh, you know, there's there's always, you know, a, a list, a litany of things that needs attention uh, to go do. It's, it requires some some planning, you know, and, I, and, I, and I'm trying to be flexible about it. You know, I'll plan to write on a you know, Thursday morning, say, and then that just won't happen. I'll have to do it, you know. Thursday night or Friday morning or sometimes over the weekend. It, it, I don't really have a set routine because I need to find the time to do it uh, when the time is, you know, when the rest of the business will give me that freedom. <laughs> <laughs> I hear you. Well, thank you so much for sharing all this with us. I think you've really given a lot of people an idea of what it's like to be a professional writer in a technical field. And we, as I said, our message is over and over again that we really think 
all paths lead to writing in a certain way. The better your communication skills, the more successful it'll be. So thank you very much for joining us today. And I'm kind of given the pure business side of that. It's really very useful. Well, I appreciate uh, appreciate the invitation and uh, you know, happy to happy to be a guest. Well, we'll put links to your website, your company's website, and some of your favorite blogs that you sent me. And other things we mentioned on our website, which is www.writersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We answer email. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre McGaffey-Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Mar- Michael Langberg. You can hear more from Michael Langberg on manyhatsmusic.com or on his YouTube channel. Our podcast sponsor is Jackal Designs, enabling you all to buy cool WDC swag. And hey, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.